0: You are this country's first openly gay prime minister. How big a deal is this for you personally? Brexit prices.
1: U.S. Investment Bank Lehman Brothers collapsed. I said this was a once in a generation a global vote. global financial crisis.
0: But I believe we have voted today for the next generation.
1: Don't be rude. Ireland has spoken with a clear, strong voice. I think I should stop now and start again, because I don't think you this is a good start of the debate. Welcome to the Dublin Law and Politics Review podcast, in which we discuss current political events. My name is Annalika Moy, and with me today is Sahar Ahmed, with whom I'll be discussing the right to freedom of religion, how it is interpreted in international law and Islamic law. If you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or find us on social media via at Dublin LPR and on our website, DublinLPR.ie. So welcome, Sahar. If I have it right, you are a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Dublin, and an early career research fellow at the TCD Long Room Hub yeah that's right hi I'm hi it's nice to meet you. So could you tell us a little bit more about your research?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I absolutely can so as you said very rightly, I am a PhD candidate in the School of Law at Trinity College, and so my research is sort of straddling a midpoint between both law and religion, um, trying to stay away from theology, but sort of looking at um, the social impacts of what religion is and how it, it it sort of feeds into our society at the moment. So what I'm trying to look at is very specifically the right to freedom of religion. And when I say the right to freedom of religion, I mean the legal right. Lots of times when we say Oh, I have the right to do so and so thing, or I have I have these rights. We don't necessarily mean them in a legal context. We mean them in a more human context. So um, I'll say something like, I have the right to be here at this moment. Um, I'm not necessarily considering what the legal consequences of me saying that are. Do I have a right in law to be here, wherever here this place is that I'm talking about? Do I have a right in law to be here? Are there consequences of me being here? Would there be consequences of me not being here? You know, so we don't usually think of that when we say right. But I am very specifically therefore looking at the legal right to religion, what that means, what that entails. And I'm looking at that under two competing legal systems. Um, I'm looking at it under international human rights law and also under Islamic jurisprudence. Um, And so when I say Islamic jurisprudence, I mean countries that have a somewhat loose interpretation of Islamic law in place somehow in society. Um, it doesn't happen.
1: That sounds quite difficult because Islam knows multiple facets and there are multiple interpretations without unraveling that discussion of what Islam is right, but how do you define what falls under Islamic law and what doesn't?
0: Oh, Analika, you've hit the you've hit the sore spot uh in my heart when you say this because it has been incredibly hard and it is an incredibly hard task to undertake. When I started the PhD, I had really big ambitions about what I was going to achieve. Um we whittled it down to from starting on what is uh, uh freedom of religion under all the Abrahamic faiths, um, which you can imagine would have <laughs> been a lifetime of research, if not more, and then came down to a loose idea of what Islamic law is, and even that, exactly like you said, there's so many different factions within Islam. Islam itself, there are different sects, there are different denominations. They all have really defined ideas of what law is, and follow very specific, very specific conceptions of it. And then, of course, we have. The other complexity, which is Islam is not a monolith, just like no religion is, and is spread out all over the world. And so, how laws are implemented in certain parts of the world are very different than others. South Asia does not have the same conceptions as the Middle East or as North, North Africa. So, it is complicated, which is why I choose to steer clear from anything that's complicated and not define it too much. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> I mean, you know, a self-preservation is important, I suppose. Um, so I'm I'm choosing not to not to really go into the semantics for the purposes of clarity, effectively. And I'm trying to look at how contemporary Islamic scholars um, have defined what they what they perceive to be the overarching principles of Islamic law, as opposed to going into the nitty-gritty theology of how different different factions and different denominations interpret the law. So I'm trying to focus on overarching principles as opposed to anything too substantiated.
1: And these overarching principles are taken from various countries or from Islam? How how do you generate these principles? Uh,
0: The principles as that's a really important and interesting question. I'm glad you asked that the overarching principles, because we have to keep in mind that Islam for Muslims is deemed to be an all-encompassing divine law in itself, so the source needs to come, where we get that law from is effectively the main sources of the religion, as opposed to any specific country and how they're interpreting it. So to keep things simple and as clear as possible, I am looking at effectively the Quran, um, which is the holy book of Islam. And I'm also looking at Sunnah, which is the practices of the Prophet Muhammad and which have also come to have precedent and value uh, when it comes to defining law and also Islamic practice. So I'm looking at these as the main sources, which have then caused scholars and jurists to interpret the law as and how they see fit, but trying to keep it as close to the source as possible.
1: That makes sense. And then you compare these principles, so these overarching principles that you found with international law.
0: Yes, but that comes at a later stage. I think one of the first things I had to find uh, was to see what international law thinks religion is. And that was my starting point. Because my background, I I work in human rights. So I I didn't come from a background of being a religious scholar under any circumstance. I come from a purely international law point of view. And I was approaching this research. And so, and that is what attracted me towards it as well. What do we, what do we as international legal scholars mean when we say religion? What is the idea of religion under human rights? You know,
1: what Um, do we mean? when we say religion what do
0: we mean oh we mean so many different things but nothing that's that's very good i'm afraid what so one of the exercises i carried out was i went through the jurisprudence coming out of the european court of human rights and also from the human rights committee of the un and going through all the judgments i tried to come up with an idea um sort of collate all the information coming out and see how has religion been defined, and more than that can we read between the lines in what the judgments are saying as to what the judges think religion is as necessarily as opposed to what they're saying it is and the thing that I have found is um, I'm sure not too many people's surprise, but it's still interesting to see it written down in black and white like that, but something that I found very interesting is. In in international law, under human rights law, particularly in Europe, this seems to be the problem much more than, for example, at the Human Rights Committee level. Religion and the idea of it is a very liberal Protestant idea of what religion is. Anything that doesn't fall under that is seen as being not very necessary for faith. And that's really interesting.
1: Because well, when you say liberal and Protestant idea, what are these ideas? What do you mean by that?
0: So liberal Protestant ideas of religion sort of focus on religion being a very personal thing. Faith being something that lives inside a human being and is all about the relationship between the individual and their faith. And doesn't involve either any outside external validation, doesn't necessarily require any other external manifestation, and definitely doesn't require other people necessarily. And beyond, for example, what the requirements of an organized religion would be, so you would need a church and you would need a priest and you you should be able to go to that church when you feel like it, but essentially speaking, it remains a very personal contract between you and whatever faith you have, right? Anything beyond that is seen superfluous. It seems unnecessary. And so through the way the international, through interna- how international law has always interpreted it historically post the formation of the United Nations has always been, well, we absolutely can't put any limits on how and what you believe because that's within you, right? That's, that's part of what makes you human. We cannot restrict that. But anything beyond that we should be able to restrict because it's not necessary for faith. And that just doesn't sit well with other religions that are inherently communitarian. Actually, we see this not even, and the reason why I don't define it as Judeo-Christian, because I did at the start. I did start by saying this is a very Judeo-Christian idea of religion. And I had to backtrack myself many times while my doing research because Catholicism is a very communitarian religion as well, and does revolve around an external manifestation of, of practice. Um, Catholicism is all about being seen. So I had to sort of backtrack myself and say, well, no, it's not a Judeo-Christian tradition because we do see a lot of Orthodox churches. We see Catholicism. We see a lot of different forms of worship within the Judeo-Christian tradition as well, which doesn't fit neatly into this private, personal idea of religion that the courts seem to think it is. Um, and like I said, communitarian religions don't fit in this. They just don't. For religions that require your, your faith-based practice to be seen by other people, it's very difficult to convince judges that the public is as personal to me as the personal if that makes sense.
1: Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Some religions are more internal, some are more internal combined with external. Absolutely. And, um, and the cases where we
0: see this coming up the most, frankly speaking, in Europe is cases involving the hijab for Muslim women, for example. It has been very difficult. There's so much jurisprudence on this. There have been so many cases before the European Court of Human Rights about the hijab and the niqab and women covering their head or their face in public in different countries in Europe we tend to think mostly about france just because france's prohibition on the niqab has been so so public in a sense has been so much has been in the media so much and has been talked about so much but france is by no means the only european country where this where cases like these have come up we've seen them coming up from belgium we've seen them coming up from switzerland We've seen them in a number of places. We've had them in Ireland as well, actually. We just haven't reached the the European Court of Human Rights level, but we've seen these coming up in debates and that's always a tricky one. That seems to be the one that's captured people's attention the most because it's very difficult to convince people to understand when they don't come from this idea where if the idea that has evolved your socialization of religion is that religion is what you have in your heart and it's personal and private and no one else needs to know it or see it. It's very difficult to convince people with that socialization that, well, actually, my external manifestation of religion is as important and is equally a part of my personal and internal faith as well. And so that's been, that's been really interesting.
1: You were talking about the internal and external manifestation, how hard it is for people with an internal faith and an internal belief to understand and comprehend sometimes how the importance and the socialization that takes place around this external belief and this external expression of your belief.
0: Absolutely. It's, it's incredibly hard. And, it, and, it, and if we think about it from a purely objective uh, point of view, and if we step back a little bit, it's understandable. If someone has been socialized in a legal and a legal in an entire legal system has been developed with the conception that religion is sacrosanct, but it's sacrosanct when it's inside you, um, and what you practice within your four walls inside the house or within the four walls of your place of worship, it's very difficult then to convince someone or an institution with that conception that, well, actually. Yes, religion is within me and in my four walls and in the four walls of my place of worship, but it's also on my external being and therefore will cross over into the public sphere as well. And that's the most notable, like I was talking about, in cases of hijab. Muslim women have repeatedly argued in front of their national courts and then in front of the Human Rights uh, European Court of Human Rights as well, that this is an impingement of my right to freedom of religion, to practice it, because... It's not just that I, this is an external manifestation for me because a lot of countries do have reservations uh, when it comes to the, the, the human rights instruments, the legislative instruments coming out of the United Nations and even the European Court of Human Rights that we can restrict external manifestations of religion for purposes of public safety, um, order, etc. And so Muslim women have been trying to convince the courts that this is not just a part of my external manifestation in the public sphere, me wearing the hijab is a part of my internal belief system. My internal belief system is incomplete unless I do this. So when you ask me to take my hijab off, you are in fact not just putting a restriction on the public side of my religion, but you're also doing it for the personal and the internal. And so that's been really interesting. Um, and so obviously courts have struggled with it and have not understood it because they are not equipped to understand it. We have decades and decades of legal reasoning and thought to, to to make them believe completely the other way. So they have struggled with this. And that's been really interesting to study.
1: I can imagine. And what were you expecting to find when you started with your research?
0: I had a lot of preconceived Uh, notions about what I was going to find. And one of them was that I will just have a really clear idea that the the international courts are just horrible racist places that just don't understand people who are different. And while it's true to a certain extent, uh, it's not as black and white as that. Um, What I wasn't prepared to find was that it's not just the personal socializations of the judges coming into play which is what i was expecting it's the socialization of the court as a whole which will be coming into into play um because if we look at the judges personal profiles who sit at these high high levels of courts they come from various different backgrounds they come from different religious traditions and if we talk about you know bias coming in which is inevitable we talk about it in, in law all the time that a judge's personal convictions will inevitably come into how they perceive the law, then decisions should be completely different than what the decisions are coming out to be. It doesn't make any sense how a, like a judge who has a, uh, has a personal conviction to be Catholic would be giving decisions against crosses in the classroom. It doesn't make any sense. So it's not necessarily, I wasn't prepared to find that it's the court as a whole that I will end up scrutinizing as opposed to individual personal conceptions. So that's been interesting.
1: It sounds very interesting. So the court as a whole, what should they learn to deal more effectively with these type of conflicts? Because are, they are hard conflicts. I mean, you were talking about the, the niqab and the hijab. Now these are face covering and fully veiling the, the face minus the eyes, I believe. With the burqa, it's, full body and the eyes only have the um, the gaze in front of it yes the problem i perceive as well is one of international or if of safety of uh, one is not allowed to walk into a bank wearing a fully blacked out helmet either so these conflicts will arise and they will be difficult to decide what could the courts improve upon to deal more effectively with these questions
0: I think one of the first things the courts need to do is, and it sounds really simple, but I think it'll probably be the biggest challenge they have, because you're absolutely right. These these issues will keep coming up. They're not going to go away, is expand their conception of what religion is and what it could mean. And and whether that means through a more expansive kind of juris engaging with more expansive jurisprudence, or whether that means having more experts weigh in, um, because I know, we know that courts do have experts weigh in on issues, obviously they do, but maybe have more experts weigh in on redefining and reinterpreting most of the rights because, I mean, I'm focusing on the right to freedom of religion, but if we start going into all the specific personal fundamental freedoms, a lot of them are really outdated and need to be uh, looked at with, fresh le- with a fresh lens altogether. And so the first step I think needs to be the court just needs to expand its view of religion so that, and this is not in a bid for multiculturalism as people tend to talk about, but just Europe has a long and rich history of various kinds of faith-based communities living together with multiple different belief systems and, and ways of practicing. It's not new. It's being talked about as something new that suddenly we have all these, different people believing in different things and trying to have different uh, ways of practicing the religion. And we're not used to it. We don't know what to do about this. It's not its not new at all. And if we trace the history of, these, of the roots of these laws back to it, they were put in place to avoid sectarian violence and to avoid communal hatred and to avoid more wars coming out because of religion. And the way the courts thought it was the best thing to do was just like clap down on everything. If no one can see what you believe, no one's going to have a problem with you. So we'll all live in harmony. But clearly that's not the way. I think the court needs to understand that it's not about being present in the public's affair that causes strife between people. It's it's about something much more personal for people when it comes to religion. It's about when people feel that they can't do something that is important to them to be able to live their whole human lives. And I think and that's see, where really the starting point needs to be.
1: And do you see differences between the courts? So is there a difference in approach between, say, the European Court of Human Rights and the UN courts?
0: Yes, there is. There's a huge difference, which is also something I wasn't prepared to find. The European court tends to be a lot more, and I say this word with a lot of caution, because if I know the baggage that the word contains, a lot more conservatively which doesn't mean it looks at it from a right-wing approach or anything, but what it it means is the European court tends to give a lot of emphasis, put a lot of emphasis on the margin of appreciation for countries to, to implement laws themselves. A lot. And if that means that a specific European country feels that it's necessary for it to put a restriction on someone's manifestation of belief, then so be it. The court is not going to ask the country to really jump through hoops to change things about this. Whereas the jurisprudence coming out of the Human Rights Committee at the UN is very different. Many cases that have been decided in favor of countries at the European level go to the UN and are decided in favor of the individual applicants. And so the, the, the Human Rights Committee, although obviously has less teeth and doesn't have the kind of binding ramifications that the European Court has, does tend to put a lot more emphasis on individual freedoms versus states' interpretation of individual freedom. It tends to put a, a favor how people and citizens view their rights more as opposed to how how states do. Which is an interesting which is an interesting um, a gap between the the two institutions. Frankly speaking, it's really interesting to to study.
1: I thought also have something to do with the European Court trying to not infringe too much upon their states in order to keep her jurisdiction and not be disbanded. Yeah, absolutely. A struggle as well between the EU court and the UN court?
0: Absolutely. It could. I mean, there's so many political uh, considerations in place when it comes to these things. We'd like to think that the court is free of any political nuances, but it's not, we know this, it isn't. Um, And so absolutely. Also, I think the fact that the fact that the, the decisions coming out of the UN don't have binding effect and can't force a state to do anything, I think allows it to be a lot more radical with how it interprets these rights and the decisions that it gives. Maybe it would be different if it had the same kind of uh, binding power that the European Court has, because we know states don't like to do what they're told to do; they want to do what they want to do themselves. Um, we know that's for a fact. So that might have something to do with it as well, and could definitely influence the kinds of decisions that come out. Absolutely,
1: interesting. Yeah. So it's we're running out of time, but it's it's a very interesting topic. Now, what I want to ask as well is because these topics are very very sensitive, um, how you express faith how you limit the expressions upon faith is sensitive. To what extent is the court, who is not a deliberative organ, a court, a judge or multiple judges, they listen to you. Yes, they may ask questions, but in the end, they are not deliberating with all parties involved. To what extent are they the solution to any sort of conflict? And to what extent should we look towards public debate and policymaking for the solution?
0: The lawyer in me thinks the court is the end-all and be-all of everything, right? (laughs) Um, All these years of training as a barrister make me think, well, what else is the world supposed to do without courts? The courts are everything we need. But um, of course, we know better than that. And I actually completely agree with what you said. I do think that we need to be looking at public discourse more than we look looking at how the courts are interpreting Um, laws and principles and normative issues it needs to be coming from public discourse there needs to be with changing populations again I'm really cautious and wary of sort of giving into this narrative of look at our demographics they're changing but because I feel like it gives rise to to potentially problematic nationalist narratives but but I do think we need to look at public discourse we do need to engage with legislators on the ground in our own particular countries as opposed to relying on this supranational body sitting somewhere at the top that doesn't really understand what's going on on the ground to, to uphold our rights. I feel like as and a disclaimer as a non-EU citizen someone who's not from the EU from what I've heard people have this idea and conception that well they are the the, the, it's the, It's Europe that's looking out for my interests. If my country doesn't give me what I want, they're looking out for my interests. Whereas the, I, I feel like that's the complete opposite idea where people need to be approaching fundamental rights from. Your social contract ex- exists with your state, and these conversations need to be happening on a state level without p- relying on Europe coming to save us. and And I think I think I think you're absolutely right. Courts do not have this function and should not have this function, as much as we may may
1: want them to. (laughs) So in the end, we need to talk more to each other. We need to
0: talk more to each other, yes.
1: (laughs) Well, let's hope that the pubs reopen, because that's an easy place to start. But... uh,
0: Good Lord, I can't, I can't even conceive going into a pub at the moment. The anxiety <laughs> of being so close to other human beings gives me eyes. But,
1: you know. <laughs> yeah, no, I know that feeling. Yes, I'm looking forward to being able to go outside without feeling like uh, a leper again. Yes, yes this is true. <laughs> thank you so much, anyway, for your time. It was a very interesting conversation. And thank you all for listening to the Dublin Law and Politics Review on uh, the freedom of religion in international law and Islamic law. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe or follow us on social media via @DublinLPR. Dublin LPR. Comments, questions, and suggestions are very welcome via contact at DublinLPR.ie. My name is Annalika, and I wish you a very pleasant day. And thank you, Sahar, for joining me.
0: Thank you so much.